If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. City of London opens the way for more skyscrapers despite environmental concerns. Academics demand an emergency review of the Silvertown Tunnel. London Festival of Architecture boss leaves for Scotland. And an exciting new generation of British architects as the AJ Small Projects Prize is awarded to a building in Africa for the first time while the Architecture Foundation publishes a book of over a hundred new architects. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My special guest this week is Will Ng. Will is reporter at the Architects Journal, the AJ. Welcome to the show. Hello, good to be here. Our first story was written by Will as a news feature in the AJ, investigating why London's square mile is storming ahead with new skyscraper developments, despite questions over the need for new office space and also questions over the environment. In the first few months of this year, three office towers, all taller than 145 metres high, were approved by the City of London Corporation. They join three already consented towers given the green light in the past few years, two of which are more than 250 metres tall. Plus, there's a further three skyscrapers under construction and another two in the planning process. In its just-released draft local plan, the City Corporation has spelled out how it aims to open up even more areas for potential skyscraper schemes, both north and south of its existing tall buildings cluster. The move could see towers thrown up over a wider part of the square mile. All this comes despite the dual issues facing high-rise London office space, a seismic shift towards working from home, and the ever-looming climate crisis. Tall buildings have roughly twice the carbon footprint per square metre of small and medium-rise buildings, according to engineer and Arab associate Tim Snelson. The net efficiency of buildings also tends to reduce with height. Simon Sturgis, an architect advocating net-zero design through his practice, Targeting Zero, said in the AJ article, quote, It seems crazy to be building like this amid a climate crisis. Well, what's this all about? Why is the City of London pushing ahead with these plans while there is still so much uncertainty over how much office space will be needed post-lockdown? So it's about economic growth, ultimately. 
new skyscrapers are investments of hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds, into the local economy. Uh, they will have new occupiers, probably office workers, very well-paid workers, um, operating in sectors such as insurance, tech, finance, legal services. And these people will have meetings and make deals with other people in the city of London, um, probably at quite expensive restaurants. So it's kind of an, an orgy of money, if you like. I suppose it's worth pointing out that the City of London represents the businesses, and in particular the financial services, um, based in its perimeter, more so really than any other local authority. So unlike other local authorities or, or councils, it escaped, you'll like this Merlin, it escaped the reforms of the Municipal Corporations Act 1835. So therefore, businesses still have a vote. Representatives of business are about 61% of the electorate. So Deloitte, for instance, has about 260 votes, um, according to a BBC article, which was published in 2017. So a lot of the electorate in the City of London kind of have vested interests in the skyscraper industry. They are the lawyers, the insurers, potentially the surveyors, certainly the financiers that um, invest and kind of benefit from these skyscraper booms. And it's worth pointing out, Merlin, that the chair of the City of London Planning Committee is a guy called Alistair Moss, is co-head himself of a real estate at an international law firm. So he's he himself kind of runs a big kind of real estate division at this law firm. Look, I'm not suggesting he's doing anything untoward. And, you know, I believe that he believes the vision of the City of London, which he's kind of pursuing, is the right one. But, you know, it's hard to imagine him kind of regularly turning down big real estate projects. That's absolutely fascinating. And certainly, I mean, looking at your feature, there's a really, really, really interesting uh, quote in there from Peter Rees. And he's the former chief planning officer of uh, the City of London. You know, somebody who imagined what the city would look like and then and then sculpted that uh, over many decades uh, before where we are right now. He said, the problem is that investment in these buildings is often from high net worth individuals who don't know what they are doing, advised by estate agents, and that what we are seeing in many incidences are trophy investments. Do you agree with him? Do you think his analysis of what's going on right now uh, is correct? And and what is a trophy investment? And why might that be a bad thing for London? Yes, I do agree with him. He obviously knows a hell of a lot about the City of London and has thought about it a lot. I suppose it's worth noting that not all developers are sort of international or, um, you know, people that have made money very quickly in places like Russia, China or the Middle East. It's the overseas developers like Hong Kong-based uh, developer Tenacity, which is going full speed ahead with its projects, um, which for reference are uh, two skyscrapers, 70 and 55 Grace Church Street, which are by KPF and, and Fletcher Priest. So I spoke to Patrick Wong, who's the chief executive of Tenacity, this kind of Hong Kong developer uh, that I'd never heard of. And he said financial centres like London and New York are, are very attractive to invest in um, because they sort of know there'll always be a business friendly atmosphere. But also because it's very kind of exciting and, and unique was the word he put it to me to be somewhere with such a long history. Um, so I, I suppose you can argue that foreign investment is good. It's money coming to the UK. Um, but at the same time, this is space which is being shaped by the whims of kind of big international capital rather than the most pressing needs of Londoners. And, 
you know, in fact, I'd argue it has little to do with the pressing needs of Londoners. Uh, in a similar way to the kind of empty investment flats in Nine Elms. I think that's very, very interesting. And you're touching on uh, history. And like one of the things that's come, for example, in our Pocket London series that looked at Croydon uh, in South London, uh, we saw that in the 60s and in the 70s, this this town, Croydon, became a centre of international business uh, with lots of high-rise buildings being built. It was called the Mini Manhattan. And that's because George Brown, who was the then Deputy Prime Minister blocked the erection of new tall buildings in central London, forcing big companies to build their headquarters elsewhere. Then, in the 80s and in the 90s, Canary Wharf took over the mantle of London's main business district, offering corporations even larger floor plates uh, in the East End. Um, and again, uh, you know, this was, this was something that happened after the central government designated it an urban enterprise zone so but now it seems like london it's kind of gone full circle uh with the city now clearing the way for huge new buildings right in that historic center of the capital um it's exactly what george brown's 1960s government tried to avoid and took actions to stop um so the question is, is there a genuine need for these bigger, better and newer central London office spaces? Or is this just an example of today's politicians uh, lacking the spine to take some really bold decisions the way their predecessors once did? I think our, people that are pro skyscrapers would say that, um, you know, they offer us density and therefore density in a really central location like the city of London makes a lot of sense, more so maybe than Croydon. Um, so we, we mentioned earlier that Tim Snelson sort of has this argument that tall buildings, um, he's sort of talking 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 storeys, have twice the carbon footprint per square metre. And there are sort of various reasons for that. But the people that support skyscrapers say, yes, well, but we can build them in the city of London where all the city workers um, get, to their, get to their work via public transport, cycling or walking. So none of them are, are driving to the, you know, to the office in the middle of London. So I suppose there is a kind of logic to having it in the middle of the city. Is there a need for this space? I suppose that depends on your point of view. Um, the CBRE said, I, I looked at the figures in this, there is a gulf emerging um, between the amount of office space which has been taken up in the last year and the amount which has laid empty. So the amount of free space doubled. At the same time, the amount of take-up kind of less than halved. And it, it's easy to imagine that businesses will be consolidating on their office space with hybrid working and, and kind of home working. On the other hand, is there a need for it? Well, there is a market for it. You know, one skyscraper developer I spoke to said, actually, this could be a good thing, the coronavirus, for me shifting my office space. The reason why is because my office space has all the perks and bells. You know, it's, it's got the kind of welfare ticked off. It's got fancy circulation systems. It's got, you know, more kind of collaboration spaces and more restaurants to, to dine clients. So I think there probably is a market for it. It's not just about the economic viability of these projects. We also have to consider those environmental impacts and particularly, for example, the embodied carbon of steel, glass, elevators. Um, these all contribute to the huge environmental impact of tall buildings. Um, 
Is there a question about you know, why the city possibly isn't putting more emphasis on building green rather than building tall? And also, are there new materials, building methods and designs uh, which might come out of a push to make skyscrapers uh, more green, to really uh, cement that need? Yeah, I mean, the city would say that it is putting a lot of uh, thinking into the sustainability on, on the sustainability front. I think... Um, it can't ignore it in a way. You know, the story of capitalism, it, in my view, is that it absorbs the things that kind of threaten it. So the City of London can't just ignore the climate change problem. You know, in fact, they spend a lot of hours looking at different ways to improve sustainability. The, the developers I've spoken to make the point they spent thousands of hours looking at how they can, you know, recycle material from buildings that they demolish, looking at how materials they do put into a building can one day be reused how they can make the energy efficiency really efficient um, so it's not off the radar at the same time skyscrapers are inherently inefficient this is because they are much heavier it's because their wind load is much greater and it's much higher up the building so they need more steel and concrete and also because they have to take services all the way up the building and that means there's less kind of usable floor space so that's why there are more carbon emissions. And I guess the philosophical problem is, um, should we really even just be building that height or should we just be building at 12 storeys to get the density we need? Interestingly, one of the reasons which developers say they can't refurbish a lot of this office space is because they were made for a lower density. So they were made to have one person per every 12 metres squared. Uh, now, the kind of current trend is to have one, me one person per every eight meters squared. So that means they don't necessarily have the kind of cores and um, amenity and shared space in order to make a kind of suitable modern office space. But I think the coronavirus means that actually we're going to have less dense offices and we should be looking to reuse this office space before just building new ones. Our second story has been covered in the AJ and across London's news media, and it involves the controversial new Silvertown Tunnel, uh, a project we've yet to cover on the London. Senior transport planners and climate experts have urged Transport Secretary Grant Shapps and London Mayor Sadiq Khan to halt work on the £1.2 billion underground road link to re-evaluate its environmental impact. In a letter to Shapps and Khan, the group of 52 academics and campaigners have called for an emergency review to be carried out to determine if the East London project crossing beneath the River Thames is in line with the UK's climate change objectives. Objectors cite the government's recent decision to intervene in the Cumbria coal mine planning row, as well as the upcoming COP26 conference, as grounds for carrying out an inquiry into the Silvertown Tunnel project. Backed by Transport for London, the scheme features new portal buildings and a proposed cycle and footbridge across the northbound approach designed by DRMM. The 1.4km twin-board tunnel is set to be completed in 2025 and will connect the Greenwich Peninsula with the Tidal Basin roundabout in Silvertown in a bid to relieve congestion at the southern approach to the Blackwall Tunnel. The signatories in the letter argue that to press ahead with plans would be undermining the UK's efforts to address climate change. 
They also stressed that because long-term transport projections have changed due to COVID-19, pressing ahead with this plan would not only contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, but would also skew London's transport system towards roads. Um, Will, what's this all about? Since this project initially received planning permission in 2017, the UK has significantly increased increased its carbon emissions goals, including a revised goal announced recently targeting a 78% reduction in emissions by 2035. Uh, in light of all this, do you think the people behind the letter possibly have a point and this project should be seriously reconsidered? Yes, I do. Um, I'm not an expert of climate and transport policy, but these people are, so I, th- I think we should listen to them. It seems absurd to spend so much money um, and carbon creating infrastructure which is going to encourage more car driving and more carbon emissions. I suppose the point that this letter really makes is that the cost-benefit analysis had changed. This has always been a controversial project and critics have always said that this is a, a bad idea and not what we need as a city. It would take a lot of courage for politicians to actually try and stop this and uh, to upset the construction and infrastructure firms that will work on it. But, you know, I hope our politicians do have some courage on this. Absolutely. And I I just think also just looking at it, I mean, even anecdotally in your view, I mean, do you do you think our cars the future for um, a city like London, and then also in that particular area, um, you know, is is this project actually essential to alleviating the kind of congestion that we see uh, in the run up to the Blackwall Tunnel in the, in the Greenwich Peninsula? Um, because uh, you know, certainly, if you look at where it's going, it doesn't. It just goes to a kind of a roundabout in Silvertown where there's not really much activity at the moment. So it it kind of begs the question: Is that actually a route where people want it? Um, but also, you know, could we be spending the money on something else? You know, for example, uh, better walking and cycling uh, infrastructure. I, I can say that between City of London and Canary Wharf, all you have is the Cable Street cycle path, and that's uh, it's not brilliant. You know, I'd, imagine if you spent £1.2 billion on a, an amazing walking and cycle path, that would uh, have some pretty extraordinary uh, outcomes. Yeah, it's probably a, a bit utopian to think we can get rid of cars from a city, at least in the kind of short and medium term. But a lot of residents and also a lot of businesses could and should pivot to not using cars. And really, you know, politicians and cities need to incentivize them to do this by investing in cycling and walking. I'd like to add that we kind of often think of investing in cycling and walking as, you know, just cycle super highways and things that will make it more safe and also more convenient. But actually, I think we should also just make places nicer to be out and about in with more public art, more alfresco dining, more plants and green infrastructure. And then travelling the city by foot, by bike would be more appealing. And uh, by gosh, we could do a lot of that with 1.2 billion. So obviously, we love to talk about architecture on this show. Um, there are uh, some uh, cycle and a footbridge element uh, at the approach ends, which are designed by Sterling Prize winners DRMM. Um, what's the significance of their involvement in a project like this? And what do you think a kind of architectural talent like that, who's you know, delivered uh, acclaimed uh, sustainable, affordable housing in the past, for example, might bring to the table? I think architects are very good at talking the talk on um, all kinds of sustainability, but actually you know, push comes to shove, they, they actually have to make some sacrifices. They can't just go along with these ideas 90% of the time when it suits them. So, you know, I think it's hard to square 
working on this project with the commitment they've made under Architects Eclair, uh, which is to evaluate all new projects against the aspiration to contribute positively to mitigating climate breakdown. So I kind of understand it. Obviously, they've got staff that they need to pay who have got families, but it will be a very big moment when an architect actually, you know, stops working in a sector that they have been working in because because of the kind of environmental reasons of it instead of making excuses you know about championing collaboration and greening infrastructure our next story was covered in the aj it's all about tamsi thompson stepping down as managing director of new london architecture tamsi is to leave london the city she has championed for more than a decade most recently as director of the london festival of architecture the lfa and it's to take up a new chief executive role at the royal incorporation of architects in scotland the rias um, the appointment comes three and a half years after neil baxter uh, the secretary and treasurer of the rias uh, formerly the most senior non-elected role at the incorporation uh, unexpectedly left uh, the organization which represents architects across scotland um, the RIAS said Thompson's appointment was part of a, quote, programme of change at the incorporation aimed at increasing its outreach and influence and demonstrating the importance of architecture to Scotland's economy, society and culture. So, Will, what's this all about? Tamsi is an incredibly talented architectural curator, champion of culture and power player in the London architecture scene. Does her leaving London signal that London's days as a front runner in the architectural world may be dwindling? I think certainly a lot of people during the pandemic have reassessed their relationship with London and decided that they'd rather be in, you know, a bigger home, maybe somewhere more near the countryside and that leaving London is the way to do that. So perhaps it's indicative of that sort of very broader trend. I certainly think it's a coup for the RIAS that has had a difficult time since the resignation of Neil Baxter in 2017. Uh, And obviously there is still a kind of police investigation into reports of financial irregularities at the RIAS. But they now have two very energetic and highly respected women at their helm. So Tansy Thompson and also their president, Christina Geiger, their youngest ever president. Exactly why Tansy left, I don't know. It's quite a good salary. It's sort of 65000 70000 So I'd probably leave London for that, Malin. <laughs> There is also the fact that if you work in architecture or for an architectural organisation, but not in practice, then the best money and potentially sort of the most power uh, is in the RIBA. Um, my understanding is Alan Valance is on more than £250,000 a year, certainly the highest paid chief executive of the RIBA, who, by the way, I noticed congratulated Tamsi on her move. But there are six staff at the RIBA on more than £100,000. So, you know, if if that does motivate you, then this is the kind of place to be. And obviously, RIAS is a sort of related subsidiary of the RIBA. And you said it's a bit of a coup for RIAS. And certainly it looks like new London architecture is losing one of its biggest assets. But um, yeah, what, what are some of Tamsi's real key achievements as head of LFA and her work at NLA? And, and what kind of innovation do you think she might bring to RIAS? She has a reputation for getting things done, finding money to get things done, um, which can be a struggle for architectural organisations. She has um, good outreach and is good at getting stakeholders on board, which I think is what RIAS want. Um, She also has, you know, obviously quite a lot of clout in London. So I think the RIAS will want her to make 
we'll want to use her to make more kind of noise in terms of policy. I know they have sort of strong opinions on lots of things, particularly the building regulations. So to make more of a noise in Holyrood and in Westminster, and also maybe to boost relations with the RIBA and have more of a say there. I'm certainly keen to see some competitions for nice little pop-ups in Edinburgh and Glasgow and lots of the amazing new emerging architects who are based in those cities uh, getting an opportunity to showcase their work nationally and internationally in the design media. So I can certainly imagine that happening. I hope so. I'll, I'll go up there to visit them. Our final item is all to do with a new generation of rising stars of the British architecture world who are arguably more adventurous and more innovative than previous generations. This year's AJ Small Projects Award has been awarded to an efficient, ultralight, socially driven project in the autonomous region of Somaliland's capital, Hargeisa, costing just £9,500. Meanwhile, the Architecture Foundation has published a 600-page book celebrating more than 100 emerging design firms in a publication titled simply New Architects 4. The AJ Small Projects winner is a 30-metre-squared common room for Hargeisa Town Hall designed by the London and Somalia-based Rashid Ali Architects, and it was constructed with a local carpenter and students from the nearby university's School of Architecture. It's the first time in the award's 26-year history that a project in Africa has received the £2,500 top prize. Previous winners have included Kamordi Grok, Chris Dyson Architects, Howard Tompkins Architects, uh, Mitchell Taylor Workshop and Robin Lee Architecture. A separate social sustainability prize was awarded this year to Automated Architectures Block West in Bristol. Uh, It's a £75,000 temporary community hub formed of 145 plywood timber blocks and it's part of a public programme, an arts-led initiative enabling residents to gain skills in designing the spaces they need. Um, Themes of innovation are echoed in the Architecture Foundation's book, which also emphasises the number of emerging practitioners who are rewriting the rulebook for architectural business models, including companies like Migrants Bureau, who curated Open City's learning website at the start of the pandemic, and Space Popular, who have designed a substantial body of digital architecture that exists only in virtual space. So, Will, what's this all about? Why is it such a big deal that a very low-budget project in the autonomous region of Somaliland's capital has won this very prestigious prize, which is often previously focused on things like private houses and cultural or community commissions in the UK? I think any recognition for Somaliland is really nice. You called it an autonomous region, but I would go so far as to recognise it as a country. As you will know, most other countries do not recognise it. Um, sort of similarly to Taiwan, it's it's not recognised, um, so countries don't have to sort of lose face with a, a bigger nearby government, in this case in Mogadishu. Um, but it, it's very nice for it that it does get kind of international recognition. I think the project itself is sort of really impressive for being very lightweight, um, I almost get the, I mean, it's certainly the most sort of lightweight building to have won this prize. But I almost feel like if you put all the materials together, you could probably just about lift it, Merlin. So um, it's a real kind of powerful reminder of how simple architecture can be. Um, and 
I'd love to see sort of more pictures of it being used because clearly it's a kind of very social and civic piece of architecture and it can really sort of influence how a larger scheme, the sort of town hall um, connected to it, um, can operate. Super. Um, and the Architecture Foundation, it's just published its New Architects 4 book. It's profiling the work of 109 practices founded in the past 10 years. Uh, does this publication and the AJ Small Projects Awards going to a new relatively unknown studio suggest the profession is undergoing a significant moment of change, renewal and innovation? Um, I think possibly it's more kind of gradual than you are suggesting. But, but yes, I think maybe there's something in that. Perhaps that's because there's more sort of emphasis on collaboration in procurement. Um, perhaps there's sort of more projects and commissions for small, diverse and kind of creative practices. I know that even kind of big estate, you know, regeneration developers are keen now to harness small practices and have other voices on board. So I think that might be one reason. Perhaps another reason is that um, wages have fallen in real terms with inflation. And increasingly, it's just good to be out there on your own as a business. And there's less kind of tying architects to their um, to the practices they might be working for. Some would say it's a bit strange that the architecture industry places so much emphasis on starting new businesses rather than working for a larger one. It's, you know, it's different from, say, teaching, where the rising star teachers of tomorrow, they aspire to be great educators at great schools, but they aren't necessarily all trying to set up their own schools from scratch. Um, why is working for a larger practice often seen as less cool by certain architecture institutions than starting your own one? It's odd, isn't it? Because I think architects aren't necessarily thought of as very entrepreneurial. And yet, at the same time, as you say, the industry kind of fetishizes starting up your own practice. I think maybe the reason is because design actually is very collaborative, I think. But within an organisation, it's, it's very hard to gauge which ideas came from where. And ultimately, probably we as the media have some responsibility to this. You know, ultimately you get kind of architectural celebrities who tend to be the practice owners and you know of course Norman Foster isn't responsible for everything he puts his name to some of it he probably barely knows about um, but but we still kind of look for celebrities because uh, we want to sort of know the stories behind a design so maybe that's something to do with it and maybe just architects want more kind of control and want to be the ultimate kind of signatory to their to their design I think a lot of architects are perfectionists so maybe that's part of it as well. Will, it's been an immense pleasure welcoming you once again as guest pundit on the Lundown. I hope you can join us again in the future. Um, where can listeners keep up to speed on your writings? All at thearchitectsjournal.co.uk. Get yourself a subscription. Fantastic. Thanks very much. Thanks, Merlin. You've been listening to The Lundown a show bringing you the big stories in architecture and the built environment in London each week, created by Open City. If you want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed tonight, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues in depth and many more too. You can tweet at The Lundown using the hashtag LNDDWN or at OpenCityLondon. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London and its architecture more open, accessible and equitable.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.